Good morning, Whitesbury Road, and we are so glad that you have chosen to be with us this morning. Uh, some of you wanted to give the Lord a hand whenever we were singing Jesus, Your Firm Foundation, so you can go ahead and do that if you like. We do that here. We would like to ask that uh, Maverick Perry Stevens and his family to come on up and our elders to come join us as well. We're going to have a baby blessing here in just a moment. We've got a lot going on, and we are so honored that you have chosen to be here. Guys, if we could go to the uh, screen that had those announcements, if we're able to do that. There we go. Uh, want to highlight some of these announcements uh, here on the screen. Call your attention to that while they're coming up. And I better make room because this is a brood right here uh, coming up. Uh, if you did not get a bulletin, uh, some of our guys will be walking down so you can have all of our announcements and everything that's going on. If you are visiting with us, and I know probably a lot of you are given the holiday weekend, we're so glad that you chose to be with us today and hope you hang around a little bit during our meet and greet time and also during, uh, afterwards so we can welcome you and uh, have you uh, really be a part of who we are and what's going on. Thank you so much uh, for being here. And what we're doing now is just a normal part of what we do whenever we uh, have, have young families with babies. The Lord said, go forth and multiply, and, and we took him seriously, and uh, do that, <laughs> have our baby blessings. So with that, Papa. There you go. 
Right. No, it's not people. It's Paul Paul. <laughs> well, we are here today to uh, present Maverick Perry Stevens, his uh, little New Testament on behalf of the elders and the church here, and uh, we'd like to present that to him. Uh, I've been thinking about what I wanted to say. This is number three for me, and they just keep getting better, don't they? Anyway, I wanted to, uh, before we gave him a blessing, ask God to bless him. I, I was thinking about some things, about what to say. And When I was a young man, somebody read a scripture that has really stuck to me. And, um, and I want to read it to, to you, especially you, Zachary. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I have given you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk them, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on their hands and bind them on their foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. And I really have tried to do that, and I know your mama has too. Uh, I can remember when y'all were little babies, little boys, and she'd be reading a book to you, and she'd say, now, who made the dog, or who made the cow, or who made the... And you'd have to say, God did. And that was the way she started. Then I can remember going on fishing trips, and son, I remember going, driving to Caney, and me and you talking about God and about scriptures. And I told somebody the other day about how much that meant to me and how much it means to me to be able to talk to you two about God and what he's got planned. So it never quits, and now you're telling me your ideas and telling things that are going on. And I know Kathy and Larry have done the same thing with Katie, uh, binding them on your uh, every way you can and impress them on your children. So having said that, we're going to bless this little boy. We're going to ask God to bless him. So if you would, pray with me. Father, uh, we just want to bring Maverick before you right now and ask you to bless him. Um, we ask you to, to uh, bless him not with all he needs, but, but what he, by all he wants, but what all he needs. And ask you to be with, if you have a, a wife planned for him, we ask you to be with her uh, and uh, help her to be who she needs to be too also, Father. Father, we do pray that uh, as a family we can impress your love on this young man and that he will grow up to always honor you and always love you and always trust you, to always just to be who he needs to be just for you. We do ask you to bless him, Father. Thank you so much for my family here and the love we share. We always pray that we make you proud, Father, who we are. And it's to whom we pray. Amen. May blessings be upon you, precious baby.
In our country tomorrow, we celebrate Memorial Day. And this day has its beginnings way back to the Civil War. And while it's been a lot of different things throughout the years, it is a day that we honor our men and women of our military throughout all days that left but did not return home. And for some, it's, this is a very difficult time because no matter what you say, how you remember, there's always that void. It had its beginnings whenever one of the generals from the Civil War said, let's decorate the graves because no one on either side needs to be forgotten. And those that left and didn't come home never need to be forgotten. They sacrificed the ultimate so that we could sit where we sit, worship the way we worship, live the way we live in the security and peace that we enjoy. We honor them. We love them. We've chosen a video that reminds us of the importance of teaching honor and remembrance to those who have sacrificed so much. Watch with us. I love seeing things click in my son's head. It's taken the better part of the last nine years to master the art of catching this elusive microscopic moment. The instant he realized where hamburgers and his little sister came from have been among the most enjoyable. Third grade has taught Hudson a lot about the roots of our country. So when a business trip sent me to DC recently, I thought it was the perfect opportunity for a father-son trip and for me to watch all the little dots connect in his head about what he'd been learning in school. We saw where the very first president lived. We came all the way out here for this. And we saw where the president lives today. son taught me what he'd learned in school about the men who framed our country. And I taught my son about the men and women who are still shaping our country today. And that's why the legislative branch is broken into two different sections. Yeah, but why do they argue so much? We walked in the footsteps of countless men and women who stood up for their rights. And we sat at the feet of the great emancipator, who to this day still sits vigilant over all of our rights. He's a lot bigger in person. Uh-huh. I've been looking for those clicks, those aha moments. But my son surprised me. He had it all pretty well figured out but we still had one place left to visit. What are these, Dad? These are our heroes, son. 
What kind of heroes? These are the heroes that made possible everything you and I saw today. These are American heroes, son. Is that a hero, Dad? Click. Yeah, that's a hero. Can we go get pizza now? Those moments never last as long as a father would like. And today I pray that the families of these fallen can somehow feel the goodness of God amidst their loss. Come on, Dad, I've been waiting forever. Okay, let's go. It is because of the sacrifices of our heroes that I have the freedom to experience moments like this. So to all the men, women, and families of those who served in the armed forces, thank you for your sacrifice. You will never be forgotten. Our Father, we, we thank you for putting things in our life to help us to remember. And in our country, as we remember and honor, uh, not just tomorrow, but uh, every time we see uh, a flag, every time we see a grave, every time we see a soldier, we, we pray that we can be people of honor. Whether we disagree or agree, whatever our standing is, that we, you have blessed us while we are your children and part of your kingdom. You've given us the privilege of being here, and we honor those today who have served us and those who have served with the ultimate sacrifice. Father, you know about sacrifice because you sacrificed your son for us. And Father, as we sing God Bless America, we do ask your blessing on our country, and it's in great, great need of it. But Father, help us as, as your children in this country to teach this country to bless you and to honor you. We love you. Thank you for the privilege of worship and the privilege of being in this country where we can do this openly. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as Mike Keller will sometimes say, this is the day that the Lord has made. He's done his part. So now it's up to us to do our part, which is to rejoice and be glad in it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you would, join us while we worship our God. This is the season for a new anointing. 
This is the season for fresh outpouring. Let the sons and daughters of the King of glory may arise and shine. Let the sons and daughters of the King of glory may arise and shine as we declare. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. In the beginning God created, and for His pleasure all creation sings. Every son and daughter of the King of glory now rise and shine. Every son and daughter of the King of glory now arise and Shine as we declare, this is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let your glory Oh, 
song is a great blend of an old traditional song and a new kind of contemporary song. Uh, Just As I Am is, is always a great one. Um, you know, it talks about how, I guess, our attitude, what our attitude is when we come before the Lord to worship Him. Right? And then the, uh, the second part, the more contemporary song, is, uh, uh, has some great words about what happens when we come. We come broken, and then He mends us. Right? We come wounded. And then we're healed by coming before him and giving ourselves over to him. So if you would sing this with us. Just as I to read. 
Every Sunday when we come here together, in a sense, is Memorial Day for us. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you to me, and this will be my name forever, a name which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And I was thinking, why would God bring up that name at that point in history about why those people should follow Moses? And the reason is, he appealed to a covenant he had made And I'm convinced that this covenant brings blessings, it brings deliverance, and it brings freedom. And we celebrate that covenant today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we are so thankful for the promises that you made to Abraham, and we are thankful for his faithfulness. Thank you that you have blessed us so much. And you have allowed us to be members of this covenant that brings freedom through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, in his name. Amen. Let your spirit come
I read a book last year about a, a, a man who was born in the largest prison camp in the world. And the book claimed that this was the only person that had ever escaped from the world's largest prison camp. And uh, I think I picked this book up one time, and eight hours later, I was just like, just stunned. And I appreciate the, the honesty and the humanity that the book was written with. But the one thing I remember about this book, about a man who was born in North Korea and just suffered extremely and somehow made it to America. At the end of his book, going from the most brutal regime on earth to the most blessed country on earth, he came to a conclusion once he got here. And he said that there really was only one man that could set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for Jesus and for the blood of his covenant that forgives us and truly sets us free. Thank you, Lord God, for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to be where you are, dwelling daily in your presence. I don't want to worship from afar, drawing near to where Yeah. 
I've been, uh, I've been in that uh, advanced class that Dr. Caldwell's teaching in Isaiah. And uh, he read a scripture the other day, and I, it's really been on my mind. And I, I guess I'd never, I don't know, I've read, the, I've read the Bible, you know, but, you know, you keep finding things that you feel like you've never seen before. But he read a verse out of Deuteronomy 28 that, that told the people that one of the conditions of this covenant was that the people were supposed to serve the Lord joyfully with gladness of heart because of the abundance of things. And I thought, man, that probably needs to be a condition for this covenant. It probably is, and I just didn't know it. So, <laughs> um, Let's be grateful, give joyfully, and live joyfully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us tremendously, and we are, we are indeed thankful. And we look back and we realize how much you have blessed us when we go other places and we realize that we have so much more than we need. Lord, help us to always be generous, to be a generous people, and to give to your work to further the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sweet is the song I'm singing today.
we're going to get started again. If you would, start making your way back. We'll sing a verse of a song, and we'll get started again. Hosanna, oh, you're my king. I worship and I sing. church. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to WFR. We're glad you're here. If you're a visitor, welcome. If you're a regular attender, welcome back. Um, now, a lot of you know my story, and, and truth be told, I was kind of a problem child, right? My mom is in the audience. That's why I'm telling this story. Uh, I was an even worse young adult. I mean, you think of, just imagine in your mind, worst case scenario, multiply that by like three or four, and that was me. And so uh, some people in my life really loved on me and invested in me, and, and that, th two of those people were my mom and dad, but even, even, even alongside my mom and dad were two other people that put in time day after day to connect with me, to love me, to nurture me, and to help me grow up into the man that I've become. And, and they're here today. They're all the way from Wichita, Kansas. That's my nan and pop, Dale and Shirley Fockler. And I want them to stand up, please, right here in the front. It's their 58th wedding anniversary today. Happy 58th, nan and pop. I love you guys. So we're continuing on in our study in the book of Acts. And I'm a counselor by academic study. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to help families and couples and individuals through the storms and trials of this life. But I think in general there is a mood in our culture, a mood of unrest, a mood of being unsettled, a mood of being a little bit beaten down. That's because the enemy has just lulled us to sleep with our tedious, mundane routines. We wake up at about the same time. We do about the same thing every morning. We go to work and we do about the same thing. We get off, same thing. And you repeat that process day in and day out and day in and day out. 
So we've got a lot of people in the United States that are walking around comatose, essentially. But the Lord God has a plan for your life that's more than just living, walking around as a comatose human being, punching the clock and waiting for the day to end. So Mike and I begin praying and we, get, we begin developing some ideas about how to illustrate how, what an incredible life that God has in store for each of us. And in the book of Acts, we see a whole lot of really ordinary people without any specific talents or abilities or training that just decided to completely sell out to God and live out God's plan for their life, doing whatever it is that God intended for them to do. And so that's how church, a really ordinary, tedious, mundane, simple, and plain life can turn extraordinary is when you, whoever you are under the sound of my voice, can let the Holy Spirit work in and through you to live out the gospel in the presence of a world that desperately needs to know the truth of that good news, such that you're making a difference in the lives around you for eternity. There is nothing more fulfilling than that. But even as I'm saying that, some of you are like, man, I've heard this before. I've heard this. It's because we've become so familiar with the things of God that we start to take them for granted and then eventually they just start to get in our way because we can't watch the game or we can't go to that particular event or because we got to maintain a certain standard of living and so it just becomes bothersome and man I just want to live my life the way I want to and there there you are comatose just like the enemy would like for you to be so I want to use an illustration today from the book of Acts in the fifth chapter it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira and if I, if I had to really title it uh, in accordance with the text, my title would be, If You Want to Live, Give. Right? If you want to live, give. And so before I get too far into that, I do want to mention the, the reason I've decided not to title it that. Is because I think one of the things that keeps us so mundane, is, that keeps us so comatose, that keeps us so unfulfilled, is we are hanging on to things that are meaningless. And so there's a colloquialism in our vernacular. There, I'm using my doctoral level uh, Scrabble dictionary stuff on you guys. That, that, that goes, that, that's called a death grip. You got a death grip on something. You're really grabbing it and holding it hard. And so this was a colloquialism that was developed based on a few people's experience at trying to rescue a drowning individual. And so, the, a drowning individual, it was conjectured that if you got close to them before they had really worn themselves out, that a reflex would cause them to grab a hold of you with a death grip and not let go and pull you down with them. And so I think Ananias and Sapphira is a really good illustration from the New Testament about some, a group of individuals, a married couple, that had a death grip on something worthless and it cost them their life. There's a, there was a guy who was a pitcher for the Padres in the late 80s, Dave Dravecki. And I guess you could probably say that he had a death grip on baseball. I can't imagine all the effort and training and discipline it takes to become a professional. But I know it's got to be a lot. And no doubt Dravecki put day and night, hour after hour, minute after minute, in trying to hone his game 
and get to the point where he was good enough to take on major league batters. I think of what it had to have been like his first pro game taking the hill for the Padres, the lights on, the stadium packed, the atmosphere electric, and he's a lefty, so this is going to look weird. And he rears back and he throws on a right-hander. That wasn't too bad. And for the next four or five years, he puts together a really good career for the Padres. One day, he feels a pain in his throwing arm, and he goes in to have it looked at, and there's a tumor on his rear delt. And so the doctors say, look, Dave, probably we're going to have to amputate your arm. And he's like, please, I'll do anything. Don't, don't amputate my arm. So they say, okay, we'll, we'll take out the muscle that we feel like is most in danger of, of, of spreading the cancer throughout the rest of your body. And so they removed his rear delt, and they had to freeze his humerus, this bone in the top part of your arm. Not very funny, is it? Oh, come on, guys. Humerus, funny. Let me, let me make a note of that here. Humorous puns are not going to work today. I'll stay away from punny things. All right. All right. So moving on. Thank you, Bill. So, so they freeze his humorous, right? Two people are laughing. And, man, if you missed that, I feel bad for you because that was really, I was waiting on that. I was thinking it was going to be a zinger. So they freeze the humorous, right? And they say, look, Dave, you've got to be careful when you're throwing. You need to wait two years before you take the hill. But man, he can't wait. He's got a death grip on baseball. It's his life. It's, it's his identity. It's where he finds purpose and meaning and hope. It's what he's passionate about. So about 12 months later, he takes the mound again. And he throws. And man, can you imagine how great it felt to get on the hill and do the thing that he loved the most? He was holding on to it so dearly. And so he throws. And about the fifth inning, he throws and his humorous snaps. And it's loud enough to be heard throughout the stadium. He goes to the doctor. They put some material in his arm to try and hold the bone that's deteriorated together. And he's benched for the rest of the season as his team is getting ready to go to the World Series. They win the pennant. He runs out to the mound. Dog pile. Apparently he wasn't placed very well in the dog pile because somebody that jumps on him breaks his arm in the same spot again. This time he goes to the doctor, and when they do an x-ray, they say, Dave, there, there's another tumor. That's why you're having this trouble with your arm. We're going to have to amputate it. And so a guy who had based his whole entire life around the game of baseball found himself completely removed from that particular phenomenon. And you decide, what if that was you? What's the thing in your life that you most value that you're holding on to with a death grip? And what if that thing was ripped from your grasp? Would you survive it? What if the thing you've put the most stock in in your whole entire life was torn from you and from that day forward you would never again be able to go back to that particular thing? And you know what? Some of you are living in the aftermath of some of that right here today. It's Memorial Day. Some of you have been out to the graveside of loved ones who are now in heaven. And you're mourning those losses and you realize a little bit about what I'm talking about. The thing that's really difficult though is not just to transfer one death grip off one thing and grab something else and then start hanging on for dear life. So let's, let's, let's move into our text now at this time. This is Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. There, there was a couple in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Had the story have gone different, I'm sure we'd have a best-selling Christian 
pop group called Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. Yo, it's Ananias and Sapphira. You dig? Okay. So there's a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira. They sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he bought, brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept, yourself, kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but also to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her bedside right beside her husband. Excuse me. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, it's not every single time in the New Testament we see such a direct repercussion from sin, but this is one of those instances. And let me just be very clear with you, church, this morning, we serve the same God who punished the sin of Ananias and Sapphira with their deaths. That's the same God who is holy and righteous and just today. And I am very much on fire about God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and God's forgiveness. But let's not forget about the wrath of God Almighty. And some of us sit in church and we want to hear Trent or Mike or one of these guys preach about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the peace of God and the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And all of those things are incredible. But you better not take lightly God's wrath. And I think it's frightening sometimes how little we make of the truth that the wages of sin is death. And I think that's one of the main tools of the enemy. That you get by with a sin or two and then another sin or two and then another sin or two. And God's patiently waiting for you to come to him saying, you come to me. Relinquish this junk in this life. Let go of your death grip here and come to me. And the enemy's just lulling you deeper and deeper and deeper down that path. Now, I do think it's important to stick with the basic level of the text. That's why I didn't call this, if you want to live, you've got to give, right? Because really what the problem is, is these guys were not giving of their tithe. And now everybody's going to grumble and complain. Oh, man, here we go. This is a lesson about tithing, you know. I can't believe it's going to go this direction. Well, I've got to it first because that's what's most obvious. So first, you need to let go of your death grip on money. That's the first thing that I, that I want to say. Why? Because a death grip on money can be deadly. You know, Jesus made it very clear in the book of Matthew that you cannot serve two masters. 
Either you'll love one or hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. And then he makes it really clear what specifically he's talking about. You cannot serve both God and money. So what does it mean to serve? Let's, let's, let's try and dig a little bit. To serve in the context that Jesus uses it would mean to obey. So you have to ask yourself a question today. Are you more obedient to your money or are you more obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ? What influences your decisions more throughout the day? Is it what makes the best benefit to your pocketbook? Or is it what makes the best benefit to the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think some of us walk around assuming that we can be completely devoted to our pocketbook and still play Christians and not experience some of the consequences that sinful behavior will afford us if we continue in that sin. And in the affluent culture that we live in, I think this is the easiest thing to get trapped into. Dave Ramsey says, us in America, we, we spend money we don't have on things that we don't need to impress people we don't even like. And you're laughing at me because we all want to think, well, that doesn't apply to me. But the reason it creates anxiety-inducing laughter in us, the reason we laugh is because there's anxiety present, probably because you're on that same rat race. Because you're worried more about your pocketbook than you are about the difference you're making for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to live a really ordinary, mundane, tedious, plain, boring life. Worry more about your wallet than you do the person who created you. See, my wallet's real small. I don't have a lot to worry about. Joke number two, bust. (laughs) Stick to the text. I'm making these notes. I'm a lifelong learner trying to make this a learning process for me. My challenge to you is to not accept ordinary in your life. That's what this series is about. And my challenge, therefore, is for you to become disobedient to money, ruling your every thought and action. And my hope for you is that you can decide to behave based on what the Lord Jesus Christ would have you to do and not what makes you the best financial bank account in in life. And so where do we then go? Well, necessarily we got to talk about tithing because that's what was going on right here with Ananias and Sapphira. I want to give you a text that I've read before to people that are close to me that I want to be blessed. And I would like for you to be a blessed people, so I would like to read the same text to you. This is in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how should we return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we we robbing you, Lord? And he plainly says in tithes and offering, you are under a curse your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Did you get that? Test me in this. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, get ready for the blessing, church, and pour out on you so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, 
says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. Let the last house you rob be the house of the Lord. But I think you've got to take it a step further. If you want to be blessed in life, bless the household of the Lord. And we don't like to hear that. Why? Because I'm already infringing on the master that you're serving. This is his territory. Wait a second now. Are you saying I got to tithe? Are you saying I got to give? I'm saying that that's a mandate, and I'm saying it results in your blessing, so it should be something you want to do anyway. Now, here's something interesting to consider. Think of the people you know that are like the epitomes of the slaves of money. These would be like Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, people that are just way over the deep end trying to generate some money. What would be ways we would describe those individuals? Well, to a degree, it's their selfishness present. Me behaving as though the world revolves around me. I get arrested, I get thrown in jail, I'm blaming the cop, my vehicle, the speed limit sign that wasn't clearly visible, and the fact that the DUI deal that I blew to indicate I was intoxicated actually was broken. It's a, it's a world centered around me. It's selfishness and it's arrogance. Me as the ruler of the world, and I think that's one thing that money gives us the sense of, that's one of the biggest lies the enemy has for us, is that, is that we're God, the world should revolve around us, people should be at our bidding, and things should just come with relative ease. If they don't, we're checking out. We're not giving 110%, and we're moving on to the next thing to latch on to with a death grip. And the harder we grab, the greater the potential for us to live an ordinary, unfulfilling, mundane life. And you know what that, that leaves? It's discontent, man. That's why these people are really going deep down into drugs or despair or, or, or whatever it is. Selfishness, arrogance, and discontent. You want to serve money? You got, you got those three things to look forward to in your life. And some of you are there right now. You want to serve God? Prepare to be blessed with a joy that's not predicated on context. Man, you could go through anything. And if the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ is in you, just like he says in John 15, 11, then your joy will be complete. Not because you've got a bank account that's going to last 2,000 years that you can pass down from family member to family member to family member, but because the joy of the Lord is in your heart. One guy's, one guy's excited this morning. Okay. Now, technically, my comment about that guy that was excited was a joke. You clapped, so I'm one out of three so far. You serve God, you get joy. You serve God, you get peace. Reference Philippians chapter 4. Again, this isn't a peace that's based on circumstance. It's not situational. It's a peace that you can always feel because you're plugged into the source of life, joy, and peace itself, and you know that there is nothing mundane or tedious about your life because you're a light in a dark world. Because you're an ambassador for a life that's eternal, that's going to be blessed, that's going to be incredible. Because you've got the secret that, that, that nobody else seems to be able to grasp. But it's not about what you go through or what you have or who you have in life. But it's the spirit that lives inside of you that causes the joy and the peace and the purpose that you need. And I want to say this too. There's joy and there's peace, but there is satisfaction. There's satisfaction. Think of, think of the Apostle Paul. Think of Peter. Think of all these guys that helped establish churches. Man, these guys went through some stuff. 
And yet they're the same guys writing about this joy that, that you, you can't hardly understand or peace that wouldn't make sense given context. And they've lived through things that none of us could hardly even imagine. Now, here's what God says about this. I, I'm talking about blessings that are not financial, but God says he's going to pour out a financial blessing on you if you'll bless his house. And so we wonder about the bankruptcy in America or the reason we're in such a quandary here. Maybe it's because we've been robbing God. And so I would challenge you, church. I would challenge you to do what God is asking you to do and take you up on his offer. The word here that, that Malachi uses that was given to him by God to describe the testing of God. Test me in this, God says to Israel. This is the only time in Scripture that word is used to describe something we humans are supposed to do to God. Test me. So I would be crazy if I was a minister and not encouraging you to say, take God up on his promises. God's checks you can always cash. You don't have to worry about God's social security program going bankrupt before you're ready to retire. He's got a cattle on a thousand hills. That's, that's infinite. That's, a, that's a, not a literal number, man. He owns it all. But what's the deeper principle? Yes, it's about money. Yes, I want you to be blessed. Yes, I think you need to give because it's a good way not to practice serving money and it's a good way to practice the discipline of serving God. But I think deeper what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira is they were really empty inside and trying to fake it. And they had a dead death grip on, on all kinds of different things. But I think for them, it's a death grip on any kind, of, any kind of acknowledgement, accolade. Flip to that next slide. These guys put money at the apostles' feet, not to give to God, but to be recognized by man. And anything you have a death grip on other than the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is it deadly, but it's probably going to generate symptoms in you of that kind of death. So you're going to feel the misery, you're going to feel the frustration, you're going to feel the pain, and you're going to wonder why, and you're going to be sitting in church and not giving and not being obedient and still not feeling connected, and that's on you. And so I think what happens with Ananias and Sapphira is they didn't realize that there was more at stake than just being included in a fellowship of believers. They weren't taking their faith seriously. And I want to remind you, church, that one of the most serious mistakes you can make in life is mistaking the seriousness of your faith. This is not a game. Some of us walk around and we manage our money or we conduct our behavior as though the Lord Jesus Christ is a fiction, a book we like to read and somebody we like to talk about, but not reality. I'm telling you, church, God sent his son to live a sinless, perfect life to die for you. So that he could redeem you and that you could be in a relationship with him. That is serious as it gets. And if you're walking around as though that's not real. Or though it's just a piece of your life and not the foundation thereof. Then my concern is you're set up perfectly by the enemy to grab hold of something that does lead to your destruction. And that's what we see right here. These guys are faking it and trying to make it. And that's not the way it works in Christ. And so you're going to have to reflect to your own self, the guy you see in the mirror. Am I living my life out as though I'm taking my faith seriously? Or am I living my life out as though I'm wanting to do things selfishly? 
The other thing I think is really important here is that Ananias and Sapphira, they don't make the worst decision. They don't make the very worst decision possible. It's not like they sell the land and they tell the apostles, hey, we really didn't sell it or we sold it and we got so much less than we thought we were going to get that we don't have any money. They gave a little bit. That's what's terrifying to me. They gave a little bit, but they, hold, they held something back. And this is where I think the title, if you want to live, you've got to give, could really be important. Because it's not simply giving a little bit, man. It's the discipline of surrender. That's the principle. I've got to be willing to surrender everything in Trent's life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to be willing to be obedient, not just in church attendance where I get up one morning a week to come sing songs that I really kind of like and hang out with people that for some reason really kind of like me, right? Now that wasn't a joke and a couple of people were laughing at me. It's got to be how I surrender the way I treat my wife. It's got to be how I surrender the way I discipline my children. It's got to be how I conduct myself financially or am a good steward of my home or the way I love my neighbor or love God. That's the way I surrender everything over to Jesus. And the other thing that I think is scary is most of us already know the areas in which we're holding back from the Lord. I think if I were to sit any of you down individually and I was saying, hey, yo, look, I mean, let's get real. You know you're holding back. Now, what's the main area you're holding back? Church, you would know. And if you're going to sit out there under the sound of my voice and say that's not true, I challenge you almost to the point that I want to call you a liar. And my fear is that it's not just you that's going to pay the price. Who got caught up in all this whole deal first? It was Ananias. And isn't it incredible how quickly that sin traveled through that family? What does scripture say? Three hours later, just three hours later, his wife is on the hot seat now. And I just think in my mind, how many of us men are living in a way that's really similar to the way Ananias lived and expecting our wives in the hot seat to do different than we're doing? How many of us are living a life that is totally amoral, that's not that's not committed to Christ, a life in which there's zero surrender to Jesus, and yet we're expecting those people in our life, in our family, to surrender and submit to Christ when we're not even willing to do it. And Ananias doesn't even make the worst possible decision. It's not a direct lie. It's like, I just, this is all I got, and keeping some for himself. And men, some of you are doing some of the same stuff. Shame on you. And get it turned around. And ladies, I think, you know, you're awesome because not one lady has said, Trent, amen, brother, God bless you. Right? So you're gentle and you're quiet and you're humble. You're not even laughing right now because you don't want to draw attention to yourself. But you know what? That's the way God would have you approach your husbands, gentle and quiet and staying committed to Jesus Christ and worrying about Jesus and letting God worry about your husband. Now, the story of Ananias and Sapphira falls in a really unique place. The the first words of the section of Scripture that I read, the very first word is now. In other translations, I'm in the NIV here. It's therefore. In other translations, it's but. These are all conjunctions linking two different stories together. What we got to take a look at, I think, to really get the whole sense of what this Scripture is talking about is the story that precedes 
the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is the last thing I want to mention, and then we're going to wrap up. Some of you are like, dude, it's Memorial Day weekend. How long is this going to take? We're just about done. The cure for a death grip church is letting go. It's letting go. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, all the believers were one in their heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was then distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Two things I want to mention. First, you need to let go of things that aren't yours to hold on to anyway. And second, your reputation precedes you. Make sure it says what you intend. Now, I don't know if you caught it. Where was Barnabas's piece of property? It was on Cyprus. That is a Mediterranean island. Some of us just have these dreams, these elaborate fantasies of owning island property, right? At least I do, okay? And if I had to choose a particular area in which I would want to own an island property, it would be off the coast of Italy. You know what I'm saying? So you could go canoe over to Italy. You could eat and get so full you felt like you couldn't walk. And you kind of drag yourself slowly back to your island and kick back, watch the sunset. Blue sea in the Mediterranean, just beautiful. And Barnabas sold that and he laid it at the apostles' feet because there were people that had need in the church. But Barnabas was aware, I think, of the reality that that island property wasn't his anyway. I'll give you a metaphor, I think, to help illustrate this. I was eating fries once with my kiddos. I've just used a lot of food metaphors for some reason. I am kind of getting hungry. Eating some fries. Best fries on God's planet Earth are Five Guys Cajun Fries. Can I get an amen, church? I mean, come on. Smile a little bit, too. That's not going to hurt you, all right? Five Guys Cajun Fries, and I'm eating them, and and one of the kiddos, uh, they're in the audience, so I'm going to try and use some discretion, sitting like this, going, going for the fries. I can imagine myself doing that when I was that age, okay? Sitting like this, going for the fries. I'm like, hey, can I get one? And they're like, no. And at first I could understand, I mean, those are five guys Cajun fries. But then I started to think to myself, like, wait a second. Okay, I'm the guy that paid for the fries, all right? And I'm 225 pounds. And you're, you're not, all right? You're littler than me. And the fries were mine to give. And you know what? If I want it, I can take them away. And so I did. Not, no, I didn't do that. Right. <laughs> and you know, as I was thinking about that, and my mind was drawn back to this story in preparation for this message, I was like, man, that wasn't me just at five or six years old. That's me today. God says, hey, Trent, I need you to let that particular thing in your life go. And I say, no, God, this is mine. No, but Trent, if you'll just let let that come to me, I'll, I'll return something back to you 
that no storehouse could contain. Sorry, God, this is mine. And sometimes it's not even financial, although I want you to be blessed financially, and so I'm challenging you to get invested in this church financially. But what if God is trying to coax from you some pain that you're unwilling to let go of? Maybe somebody has hurt you, and you're holding bitterness and resentment against that individual, and you don't want to let it go. And God say, man, if you'll just give it to me, I'll transform your life. Maybe God wants you to be a little bit more disciplined in your spiritual walk so he can grow you up spiritually. That's the plan. But you're saying, no, God, you can't have any more of my time. I am not going to read. I am not going to pray. I am not going to get involved in a house church. I am not going to hang out at WFR and shake people's hands before and after service. I got things to do, God. That's my time. And what's so cool about God is despite the fact that I know he's sitting there shaking his head, he, he's like, okay, Trent. But I want to I tell you there's so much more to life than that. And what else is cool is that word started to get out about these guys. This is how the world changed. Because these guys' reputation preceded them, and their reputation was one of not holding back. They didn't hold back. Paul and Barnabas went on this missionary journey that was incredible and they faced peril and all these neat things and they were giving, man, they were letting it go. They weren't holding any, anything back for God and it, the most incredible things imaginable happened in the lives of these guys. Then Paul and Silas and then other people all traveling around not holding anything back. And that really, church, is how your ordinary everyday life can get extraordinary. You say, you know what? I'm going to stop hanging on to my pride. I'm going to stop hanging on to my arrogance. I'm going to stop hanging on to my checkbook so tightly that I've got a death grip on something that's meaningless. And I'm going to instead cling fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to let go. I'm going to become a little bit uninhibited. I'm going to follow the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it means I've got to raise my hands in church or I've got to clap. Or i got to go to my neighbor and say, hey, you want to come with me to learn about Jesus today? Or i got to pay for the meal of the person behind me in Chick-fil-A, because that person would probably be me. I'm there like five times a day. Or maybe you start praying for people that you don't even like. Can you imagine that? Praying for somebody that's hurt you, that's used you. And that's how an everyday, ordinary life turns extraordinary. I'm going to wrap up. But I hope this sermon has resonated with you. And I hope, you've, I hope you've been challenged to look at yourself and to figure out what it is that you have a death grip on. And maybe you're somebody that's got a death grip on your finances and you need to come forward and pray and let some of that go. Maybe you've got a death grip on some pain and bitterness and you need to let that go. Maybe you've just had a death grip on your old way of life and you need to be baptized into Christ and start brand new. Whatever the need is in your life, I pray that as we sing a song, you would come forward and let us pray for you and that you would let your ordinary, everyday life today become extraordinary. Make me new.